Welcome to the U.S. National Privacy and Cybersecurity Podcast. My name is Jason Shoup, and I am the Executive Director of today's sponsor, the Association of Data and Cyber Governance. The association offers a discount on memberships for our podcast listeners when they go to www.adcg.org and use the code word POD. Today, we are led by our host, Jody Westby. We hope you enjoy the episode and don't forget to leave us a rating or a comment. This is Jody Westby, and today we are honored to have Mark Graham, director of the Wayback Machine of the Internet Archive. I'm going to give you a little more background on Mark than usual because it will be so helpful to you in understanding Mark's role and how his work is is important to so many people around the globe. Mark, as I said, is director of the Wayback Machine, where he works to help make the web more useful and reliable. Previously, Mark was senior vice president with NBC News Digital, where he managed several business units, including Stringwire, a live mobile video platform for collaborative citizen reporting. Mark also served as senior vice president of technology at iVillage, co-founded Rojo Networks, was one of the first large-scale feed aggregators and personalized blog readers. In the early days of the internet, Mark led the Wells effort to build the first web-based interface for online forums. He also helped bring the pre-web internet to millions of people by running AOL's Gopher project as part of their internet center. So you can see we have one of the internet's early technologists with us today. And so, Mark Graham, welcome. Thank you again for taking time to be with us today. Just to set a foundation for our discussion, I remember meeting you several years ago at a conference. And I said, what do you do? And you said, you told me you backed up the internet. (laughs) I asked you then, what what does that mean? (laughs) And I was fascinated by your answer. So please tell our listeners what the Internet Archive does and generally what you do as director of the Wayback Machine. Sure, Jody. Great. So, so it's a pleasure to, to be with you uh, today and with your, your listeners. Wow, so many things. Um, yeah, the, uh, well, first of all, the, the Internet Archive is about a 26-year-old nonprofit. Uh, it's got a location in San Francisco. We, we own a, a church there and have a lot of, uh, of public events. But but the staff, uh, especially now in the days of COVID, are distributed all, all over the world. And uh, we, we work toward the goal of universal access to all knowledge. That's kind of a mouthful. And uh, it's, it's, it's aspirational. The, uh, the organization was started about 26 years ago by uh, a man named Brewster Kale. Brewster uh, was an internet pioneer. He created a the first uh, uh, publishing platform for, for the web called Waze, uh, Wide Area Information Service, not the thing you use to drive around with. He, <laughs> he sold, he, yeah, he, he sold that one to AOL. And then he created another company called Alexa Internet, and uh, not the thing you talk to, but it was uh, it was an early system that, that tracked what was going on on, on the web. And he, he sold that to Jeff Bezos, uh, Amazon, which is part of the reason uh, how they have the name Alexa to this day. In any case, that, that gave him the financial uh, resources to pursue his lifelong goal 
of this uh, grand audacious uh, objective of helping to bring about universal access to all knowledge. And he and, he and we, and I say he because he's still all these years later is in the office uh, every day leading the organization, work toward this, this goal by uh, taking analog material, digitizing it, preserving it, making it available, and then also working with born digital material and archiving it and, and preserving it and making it available as well. And so the, the overall effort is, is the Internet Archive. As noted, um, I manage a, a piece of it referred to as the Wayback Machine. And the Wayback Machine is it's, it's, not a, it's not one thing. It's like thousands of things. And in a nutshell, it's a time machine for the web. It, uh, it works to add a time dimension to what is an otherwise kind of like now kind of medium that doesn't have a good memory. It certainly has no version control system. You go to a given URL and you, you, you know that right then and there, you're seeing a certain thing. Other people may be seeing another thing at that same URL at that same moment. And certainly other people may be seeing other things at different times from that same URL. And there's nothing in the protocols that uh, gives anyone a way to know, to know what those different versions are of the material that's available from a given URL at a given point in time from a, a given uh, location with a given uh, browser technology, et cetera. So we, we try to fill in some of the blanks there, and we work in a number of different medium. Uh, it also, I'll rattle off some uh, books, 78s, the things that came before vinyl, journal articles, radio, television, and of course, things that you can get uh, via the web. And, uh, and so, you know, I, we don't, we may say we, we work toward, I say I, I work to, uh, to trying to archive a lot of the web. Which, apart from that whole, that idea of universal access to all knowledge, we, we really eschew um, superlatives and, uh, and absolutes and just try to say that we're working day in and day out to try to uh, make more of, uh, of what human beings uh, create and publish accessible to people today, but also preserved and accessible to people for the ages. Yeah, you know, um, I'm from way back when as well. And when the internet <laughs> highway was coming out and all of the stuff about the promises of the internet, we're talking about you have libraries just, you know, and a, a little chip and we're all promises <laughs> of all of this data be available to the world. But the truth of the matter is just because it's on the internet doesn't mean it's going to stay on the internet. And a lot of data gets posted and then it gets taken down or it's yeah. never to appear again. Yeah. And you guys are doing a, a fantastic service by capturing a lot of that content and holding it. So yeah. when you spoke, you mentioned the Internet Archive has a project related to Russia's war with Ukraine mm -hmm. and noted yeah. that truth is the first casualty of war. Yeah. Now that, that really got my attention. Please tell us about this project and what you're doing. I think it's so relevant to our, our current times. Well, I mean, first of all, there's, there's uh, you know, many different things that we're, we're, that we're doing um, uh, that made some of them we've been doing for a number of years and, and others we initiated whole right around January 24th when Russia invaded uh, Ukraine. But you know, it's, it's, all, it's all really serving the mission, uh, as I said, of universal access to all knowledge. 
and but maybe bring in a little more focus. That's what we do from time to time. We we go pretty wide, but often we also attempt to go deep. And so that's what we did. And, and I was I was listening to um, to radio talk radio in the United States that happened to be Fox, and I was thinking to myself. I wonder what what the Russians are, are are watching on television and listening on on radio, and I, I think that was around uh, around the twenty fourth. And so, basically, I, I went home and I started looking around, and I found that it was harder than I and than I thought at first to get access to Russian television and uh, and Russian radio, and certainly, um, you know, much of it state uh, television, but also some of the independent channels. So. We, uh, within a few days, identified four of the primary Russian state television channels and hit the record button. We just started archiving them as close to 24-7 as we could, and then making uh, those uh, resources available from archive.org. We teamed up with a project, uh, something called GDELT, the Global Database of Environment, Language, and Tone, GDELTproject.org and began working with those materials to make them more accessible to people. Uh, one of the challenges that we, we had is, uh, unlike uh, U.S. Uh, news shows that have closed caption, uh, there's no closed caption for, for Russian right. state television, and it was in Russian. So, um, you know, super long story short, over the last many months, we've evolved um, some pipelines where we're now ingesting uh, Russian television and we're doing near real-time transcription and translation and adding uh, uh, Russian text to this television and then translation in English text. And we're soon going to launch um, a, uh, a text search interface so that one can discover you know, individual uh, segments based on people's names or cities, um, et cetera. We also developed some new interfaces for this that take advantage of a massive generation of thumbnails, and some visual search technologies using a variety of AI tools. But that was just one of many. We have maybe a dozen projects underway. Another one I'll mention is um, there was a, a, a librarian at Stanford, Quinn Dombrowski, who uh, she and a couple of other librarians initiated a project called SUCHO. That's an acronym that stands for Saving Ukrainian Cultural Heritage Online. You can just go to SUCHO.org. And within uh, a couple of weeks of initiating this project, uh, Quinn and, and others uh, amassed more than a thousand volunteers who began identifying fragile digital Ukrainian culture and then working to ensure that, to the degree possible, that digital material was archived, archived in the Wayback Machine and archived in other platforms. So, I mean, I could go on. I'll just mention uh, radio. We worked to ensure that Echo of Moscow, an independent radio uh, channel, was was available. We uh, we did deep dive on all Russian, and I would use the word all there, but like more than two million Russian websites and and hundreds of thousands of Ukrainian websites, and then an even deeper dive on Ukrainian and Russian uh, news sites, including a collection of approximately sixty independent. Ukrainian uh, or actually independent uh, Russian language news sites that now, of course, are all being run outside of out of Russia. These are uh, many of them, you know, Russian journalists in exile who are continuing to maintain uh, independent Russian language news sites. So you back up all of this media that anyone <clears throat> access via archive.org. Correct. But it is in several languages. So if you have something there that's in a foreign language, can someone just use Google to translate it so they can understand it? 
Absolutely. I mean, that's that's what I do, you know, with Google Chrome. It's pretty stunning what can be done there. There are some emergent technologies. You've, I'm sure, like we've all heard about GPT, uh, you know, three and and ChatGPT and and services like Whisper. Google has a Cloud Vision uh, API, and it's just uh, really in the last few months has been a, a surge of services that have become available to, to pretty much a- anyone. So we're certainly taking advantage of those. We're beginning to incorporate some of those into our, our workflow and our interfaces. The dominant language right now, the interface for the Internet Archive is, is English. But as you noted, you know, one can certainly use Google in multiple languages and often fairly quickly find what, what they're looking for. I, I, sh- I should quickly note here that while we are based in uh, principally in the U.S., um, English is a dominant language on the uh, the internet and, and the web um, worldwide. We work uh, hard to ensure that we're getting a representation of the languages of the world uh, mm-hmm. and the perspectives of the world, especially when it comes to news. I, I just I'll take a, a little bit more time on this to say, for example, in we have more than ten projects underway that have to do with archiving news from around the world, and one of them is powered by a a database that we generated a a few years ago of about 170,000 news sources. So, uh, you know, Wikipedia, for example, people think of Wikipedia as one thing. Wikipedia is really about 230 individual language editions. And uh, so if you you take that, you know, 230 number, so about 230 some, so we did a pretty deep dive to to, um, inventory news sources, newspapers, radio stations, television stations, et cetera, from about, uh, represented about 230 languages. And we use this, this data set as part of our guide of what we, on a continuous basis, uh, in, the, in the tune of more than a billion objects uh, a day, are archiving from uh, web-based uh, platforms into the Wayback Machine. A billion objects every day. Oh, yeah, more, more than that, yeah. Probably closer to 1.5 billion, but, you know, who's Um, counting? (laughs) So there's the backing up of of all of this data of various forms, but then Mm -hmm. people can access it by archive.org and they can use tools out there to get it in their language. You make it usable. Tell us a little bit about the closed caption business and how you Mm -hmm. are doing that. Yeah. Because isn't the point of that to make the data more searchable? Is that yes? Can you tell us how that works? Sure. You know, and that's something that it's really because um, there's a requirement, you know, a legal requirement in the United States for um, certain programming to have closed caption available. That we're able to take advantage of, of this capability, and we think about television as data, TV as as data, and so. If you go to archive.org and at the very top, there's an icon for video and then there's an icon for television news and it's the TV news archive. And one can go in and um, and in, in a fashion that's respectful to the rights holders. I want to be, be clear about this. Um, we, for example, make the, the video available only in, in small segments. And, uh, and so you just can't go in and just you know download you know all of a, a given news show. Um, but if you're looking for a clip or a segment, you're able to find that by doing a text search, which is based on the closed caption. 
And then you could go in and you can maybe trim a little, you know, 20 or 30 second piece of it and annotate in some fashion and then maybe share it on, on social media or include it in a, in a research project that, that, that you have. So and this has enabled uh, many, many journalists uh, to do a, a, some real breakthrough work. There's a, a particular journalist at the Washington Post, Philip Bump. Uh, and if you just, you know, Google up some of Philip Bump's work, you'll see that in his stories somewhere in the bylines, it'll say, you know, thanks to the Internet Archive, TV News Archive and GDAO, uh, there was a, uh, a story that was done by the New York Times this year. It happened to be about Tucker Carlson, and it analyzed more than 1,100 Tucker Carlson shows. Uh, it actually won an award this year at the Online News Association's uh -huh. uh, annual awards event, and that was based on the archives from the uh, the TV news archives from the Internet Archive. So um, you know, we're doing a lot more of that too, extending our capability to be able to work with a media that maybe it was uh, traditionally or historically ephemeral, like television, like, you know, right. it's a great example of that. Like, you know, I don't know what was on news last night or media that maybe it was difficult to, you know, to see the, see the, uh, see the, you know, the forest for the trees. And so we're uh, applying some of these principles to a new project we have called Democracy's Library. And this is one that we just initiated a few months ago. And we are uh, taking a concerted effort right now. As I, I said, we sometimes go wide and, and then sometimes go deep as well. But to go deep and wide into material that's published by governments, starting with a focus on the U.S. government and the Canadian government. But uh, that's a pretty herculean effort. And I could probably talk about that for hours. But uh, I think we probably want to address some other uh, issues here. No, I mean, I, I think it's really important. I, I can see the value of having this content preserved and accessible from a source where governments can't order it taken down. Yeah. Um, yeah. There's a strong free speech component to this. Yeah. And I can see the value of this data to so many people. But doesn't it also help people in these countries to have access to content they otherwise wouldn't? You know, it, it does. It does. And I'll just tell you a few things. One is, um, yeah, uh, material is often published in a certain countries, certain countries that have authoritarian right. regimes or dictators, et cetera. And then um, they are uh, suppressed. The, the websites are taken down. Um, uh, journalists are put in jail. The example would be uh, many of them, but one would be uh, The Stand uh, News in Hong Kong. There's uh, also uh, Apple, Apple Daily. So in, in Taiwan and in Hong Kong, you have examples here. In Iran right now, there are um, dozens of, of web web news websites that were are being blocked by the Iranian government. Uh, Reporters Without Frontiers has worked to make those available outside within Iran through other sources. And we've been uh, been working with them to help support that effort. You know, when when the failed coup happened in Turkey, the uh, Wikipedia documented more than 100 news sites that were shut down. There's a complete list of all of them on Wikipedia. But, you know, also in our own country, I just say this is the, the vagaries of, of, of governance, the way our system works. There are a number of select committees of the House. And I'll just give you two examples. There's the, the, the select committee on, on January 6th, and then also the select committee on climate change. That um, And there are several others. Actually, another one is the select committee on, um, on congressional modernization is another one. My understanding, we're talking on December 14th. My understanding is that the, the web sites associated with the, the U.S. government websites associated with those select committees will probably be removed from the web on January 3rd or January 4th. 
mm-hmm. when Republicans take control of the House. So in terms of the way the House rules work, mm-hmm. um, it's my understanding that 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 they they'll be able to uh, do that. So needless to say, we're ensuring that all that material is being archived in near real time. All of the associated videos, which will be made available, I think the House Committee on January sixth says that they'll make the report available on December 21st. So from the from the December 21st until January 3rd, doesn't leave a lot of time when this material will be publicly available, but we'll we'll ensure that it's available um, for for the ages. Do you track who accesses the data? Not really. You know, we we um, we certainly don't at, a, at an individual person level. We yeah. we go out of we go out of we put it this way. I mean I once again I don't want to use absolutes, but we we take measures to not pay attention to that kind of uh, information, honestly. And, you know, we're a library. At the end of the day, we are a library and we we respect um, uh, the privacy of our readers and we take measures to help ensure that that privacy can be maintained. Good. You mentioned preserving the culture of Ukraine and there's um, this article that you (laughs) drew my attention to in The Guardian that was just published December 4th, Stephen, by Mm. Stephen March. And by the way, for our listeners, that this will be posted on the ADCG website along with the link to the podcast. And and he says in, in here, the battles of the 21st century are hybrid wars fought on any and all fronts, military, economic, political, technological, informational, cultural. Often ignored or relegated to marginal status, the cultural front is nonetheless foundational. The wars of this century are wars over meaning. As American forces learned in Iraq and Afghanistan, if you lose on the cultural front, military and economic dominance swiftly erode. And, you know, I remember Mm, being horse stricken at watching the Iraqi museums and and repositories and the courthouses being destroyed. And so when you talk about preserving culture in the middle of a war, that's a very, very powerful thing. And can you tell us a little more about what you're doing to help preserve the culture and history of Ukraine? What are some of your sources for these cultural materials and kind of what the logistical issues are around how you get this data? Yeah, sure. I mean, first of all, this is a work in progress, and I would invite anyone listening um, who might have ideas about how they might be able to contribute to the the, the process um, with ideas or connections or, or questions or suggestions to, to reach out. There's so many different ways. I mean, you know, I already mentioned working with these volunteers uh, through the Sucho project. Um, yeah. You know, often we'll identify and work with domain experts. So, you know, we're, we're pretty good at, at doing part of what we do, which is technical and logistical and operational, but we don't necessarily speak the language and know the culture. And so we, we partner in team with people who do. And so, you know, in, in the incredible article that you just referenced, uh, there were uh, several people uh, that, that were named and, We've, of course, reached out to, to those people and we're working um, with some of them already. Uh, I'll just throw out a couple of examples. One is uh, the, the article uh, documents books that were destroyed, libraries that were destroyed, hundreds of libraries uh, that have been destroyed. So one of the activities of the Internet Archive is we acquire and digitize and lend books at scale. We digitize about 3,000 books every single day. 
And just as an aside, you know, I say, you know, how do you do that? How do you get those many books? That, to kind of put that, to visualize that, that's about a shipping container worth of books uh, every couple of weeks. And um, so uh, over the years, we've uh, had uh, donations of books from many different um, parties, or many different, many libraries, some from uh, colleges that have, that have shut down. They've given us their entire library uh, and we'll send people out to do an inventory of, of them uh, and we call it an away team. And But we decided we wanted to be a little more focused. And traditionally, the, we identified the books that we want to digitize to acquire and digitize based on whether they're referenced in a Wikipedia article or whether they're included in a college or university course. And uh, about three or four years ago, we purchased a used bookstore. Some of you may have have heard it's called Better World Books. It's an online used bookstore. And uh, and it is now wholly owned by one of the sister nonprofits of the Internet Archive. And every day, thousands of books are pulled off of the conveyor belts at Better World Books and put in boxes and pallets and shipping containers and digitized. We are adding to that prioritization process right now books that, that were in Ukrainian libraries that were destroyed through by, by Russian missiles. So this is, we're just initiating this process, but that's an example. We'll say, okay, let's identify uh, these, these cultural artifacts. Uh, and so that's not for a long-term cultural preservation uh, so much as that's for right now, right? So that um, Ukrainians could have access to their own culture um, in, in the form of these books that were in their libraries before they were just destroyed. So we're operating on, on multiple, multiple fronts there. So I just said 3,000 books a day. I yeah. think that times 365 days. And that's yeah, about a million. Number. Yeah, it's a big number. <laughs> and you think, oh, that's a lot. But then you say, okay, so you've been in existence 25 years. That's only 25 million books. Oh, gosh. But yeah, but we, we, this, we've been and, ramping up. So we don't okay. have that. We have maybe, four, maybe four million. Yeah. No, and totally. so then I did a little search here and it said in 2010, Google estimated there were 129,864,880 books. That was in 2010. But today they're saying now it's 156,264,880 titles in 2022. So that's a lot. And that's a lot of books. (laughs) So do you have a number for how much data you've archived? Oh gosh, we, we measure, yeah, we, we measure things like in units of shipping containers or petabytes. <laughs> yeah, uh, a petabyte, petabyte. is, uh, yeah, it's, it's basically a thousand uh, gigabyte and a thousand gigabyte is a thousand megabyte. So yeah, I, you know, it's approaching a hundred petabyte, I think is is the a good number to share. You know, as I say, you can, you can also measure the number of, I said objects earlier. In that case, with regard to the web, the object is the, is the stuff associated with the URL. So, um, you know, more than a billion URLs uh, are archived every day. In the Wayback Machine, I mentioned the number 3,000 books, you know, maybe uh, 50 television news channels and uh, 78s. I think we've digitized about 400,000 78s, which is just a massive amount. That's, that's, that's shipping containers full of 78s right there. I should note, those were donated to us by the Boston Public Library. Yeah. So they just said, you know, we've got all these 78s. We're not doing anything with them. And uh, but the Internet Archive, you know, they have the uh, the will, uh, the inspiration and the, the technical capability of digitizing these and then making them available. So it's uh, so in, it's, in uh, cybersecurity backup. Uh, 
It's always a big yeah. thing. And so what about cybersecurity? Mm-hmm. Do you have problems with the security of your data? Are attackers trying to corrupt or zero out the data you archive? Well, Jody, of course, you know, I, I could get into specifics of, 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 about that. But I will, I will say that there's a, there's a principle in archiving that we mm-hmm. adhere to. There's a couple of principles, actually, are pretty important to us. The first one, I think maybe David Rosenthal uh, was uh, came up with this idea. It's referred to as uh, locks. Lots of copies keep stuff safe. Oh. And uh, yeah, lots of copies keep stuff safe. Locks, you know, the... The uh, books are a wonderful medium because they they tend they tended to be printed in um, in bulk, like you know more than one copy at a time, and those copies were easy easy to pass around and distribute physically distribute, and so they they tend you know many many books have lasted throughout the ages, even though individual copies of a book may have been destroyed, other copies are available. So so that's a principle that we follow. I'll just say that. We don't write our data in only one place at a given time. Yeah. So we have we have what we refer to as physical archives, and they are physically separate from each each other. So that's that's one layer of the the effort there. Well, um, we're we're out of time, but I have to ask no. you to close. Who funds all of this work? Where, <laughs> where does archive.org get its money to do this and store all of this data? I'm sure some of our listeners might be interested in relating to your efforts. So where do you get your money? Yeah, well, people like you. You know, there's, uh, I think our, our budget's around $25 million a year. Some of that we raise through uh, program-related business activities. We have a, a department called Archive It, and governments and museums and universities uh, pay money for us to do web archiving on their behalf or book digitization. So you know, some of it is is done is is done that way. Some foundation support, um, some wealthy individuals are very generous. But you know, at the end of the day, this every year in in December we run some banners uh, modeled after what Wikipedia does, and we ask the the patrons, the people that use our service, more than a million people a day use our service. But you know, we ask them to chip in a few bucks, and uh, and I'll just say that more than one hundred and ten thousand people last year. Uh, donated money to the Internet Archive. And uh, so we're very grateful for the support of our patrons. And it allows us to offer our services for free without any advertising. You know, it's like, you, 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 that's uh, pretty key to... Uh, the, and, and also, this whole idea that this is not an archive that's just like going to be uh, stuffed away somewhere that 50 years from now, someone's going to open up a locked door and try to see what's in it. It's alive. Uh, that's the other key principle, in addition to having our uh, material distributed, physically distributed, is that it's constantly being used and accessed. And, uh, and we think that helps uh, to keep it relevant and, and gives us the opportunity to get continuous feedback from our patrons about how we can do a better job of serving them. Well, I know I use it. The cybersecurity researchers, I know, use it all the time. Other academicians, um, writers and journalists, um, because they can find stuff there that they saw and it's no longer available. So it, it is an, an incredible resource. And, you know, we have, we, some of us say in America that maybe you know the number for this, um, that most, a majority of the content in the world is stored in the US at this point. Mm. Mm. And do you have any idea what percentage that would be? I don't. I'm going to go look into that. I, I have no idea, Jody. Um, uh, that was told yeah. to me by a senior State Department of official and yeah. said, you know, it's actually a, a national security issue for us. Mm. And I've 
immediately said that makes a lot of sense. Um, so for, um, for all of us who believe in the internet and all the good it's brought and the benefits, uh, what you're doing there at Wayback Machine and at archive.org is so important. Thank you so much for taking your time to be with us today and sharing with us about your work. There's a great YouTube video of Mark giving a talk recently at Aaron Swartz Day and We'll put those links um, there with the, the podcast episode. So thanks again, Mark, and happy holidays to you. Thank you, Jody, so much. I love your podcast, and it was really an honor to be uh, with you today and with your listeners. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you for joining us this week on the U.S. National Privacy and Cybersecurity Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. If you enjoyed today's podcast and want more content about the issues we've covered, you can visit www.adcg.org. The Association for Data and Cyber Governance is the leading association connecting all aspects of data management, cybersecurity, and governance. Our listeners can use the code POD at checkout for a discount on all memberships. Thank you for listening, and we hope you will join us next week.